1: Here's a phrase you don't hear much anymore. Post-racial. If you were around back in 2008, this was a popular term. Hello, Chicago! America had its first black president, the vibes were good, lots of optimism.
2: If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, tonight is your answer.
1: But Obama's victory very quickly gave way to a reactionary movement on the right. And since then.
2: Police cars set on fire. Officers attacked. The fury ignited after 46-year-old George Floyd died. There is an attempted cultural genocide going on in America right now. Critical race theory essentially argues that racism is baked into all the systems of American society.
1: The idea of a post-racial America seems naive Is there anything we could do, individually or as a society, that could get us back to that optimism for a post-racial America? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Thomas Chatterton Williams. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic and the author of Losing My Cool and Self-Portrait in Black and White, both of which are memoirs about his collision with race and identity in America. Williams is a controversial figure. His ideas about race are certainly unorthodox, and that has earned him a ton of critics, on the left and the right. It's not entirely accurate to say that Williams is calling for a post-racial America. But he's definitely asking us, as individuals, to transcend race as an identity. For him, our racial categories are prisons, and as long as we're trapped inside them, we'll never escape the oppression they've helped create. It's a provocative argument, for sure. And for that reason, it's also the kind of argument we love to engage around here. So I invited Williams onto the show to talk about it. Thomas Chatterton-Williams, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with your background just a little bit. The way you talk about these issues is really through the lens of your own life and your own experiences.
0: Sure. So I'm the first year of the millennial generation born in 1981 in suburban New Jersey, very much still in a culture where... The principle of the one drop rule governs your sense of racial identity. So my father's a black man from the segregated south from Texas grew up mostly in Galveston under segregation. My mom's a white evangelical Christian from southern California and we were what is called today a multiracial family but we didn't think of ourselves that way. We were we were a black family and I kind of in retrospect had a uncomplicated way of thinking of racial identity so I never really identified as biracial. Didn't really have that terminology in my vocabulary until I was in my 20s. I grew up very much with the sense of race as a binary, a black-white binary, either or. My first book is a coming-of-age memoir about hip-hop culture and the street culture that's infused into the music that, I guess, promoted a kind of idea of racial authenticity, that there was a proper way to behave as black, as a black male specifically. And so I, I wrote about kind of growing through this racial identity and then growing out of it in my first book, Losing My Cool. And I thought that that was basically how I would think about race forever, that blackness is more expansive than the way I had grown up thinking about it. But then I moved to Paris when I was 29 and I married a French woman who, it dawned on me, had blonde hair and blue eyes as my mother did, does. And it started to occur to me that if we had children, that we might have children who it would be very difficult to physically recognize as black. You know, I had to recalibrate what I was prepared to do in raising a child and sending a child into the world with the kind of racialized thinking that I had grown up with and to decide whether that was something to really be passed on. And so I thought... The physical presence of this child destroys the kind of fiction of race that I had grown up believing, and it makes me have to step back and question the categories I pledge allegiance to,
1: so when you were growing up, did you feel your racial identity was a kind of performance? Did you feel pressure to perform your race in that way?
0: Very much so. And a kind of criticism that I receive sometimes is that, well, you know, Growing up, we're all performing in many different ways, and teenage identity is something very much in flux, and people are trying on different identities. And so to what extent was the racial performance that you think of as so profound, to what extent was that just normal teenage insecurities and things like that? And, you know, that's a very good question, and I can't separate the degree to which some of what I'm thinking about as just the insecurity of teenagehood, but I was very much performing a kind of idea of black masculinity that I think was marketed and sold to my generation. The kind of racial performance that I very much would say I was doing when I was in school or at the basketball court or whatever was in tension with the kind of identity that I inhabited in my father's household. And I used to think that one was a more authentic black identity, and that would be the one outside of my father's household. And the identity at home was something else than that. And it, the book was my resolving the fact of the expansiveness of blackness and that they were not actually in, in a racial tension.
1: So when did that binary logic of race that you grew up in, we all kind of grow up in, when did that start to crumble for you? you know, when did your self-conception really begin to, to shift?
0: When I held my daughter Marlowe in 2013 is when my sense of the way race works fell apart. And to reiterate, I didn't think here I have a white child. I thought this child is somewhere between 20 and 25 percent Senegambian, West African descended. No one in the street can look at her and perceive that. What does that mean to call that person white, what does it mean to call myself black if I can produce a child that looks like that? I think that these categories don't contain us, and I, I suspect they might not contain other people as well. But we just happen to be living on the very margins where they fall apart.
1: So fast forwarding to the present, you just used the word category. You know, Is the main problem for you the fact that we seem to be trapped in these racial categories?
0: Yeah, very much so. I just think that we're drowning in the boundaries of identity, of abstract group categorization that oftentimes really oversimplifies the multiple identities that we always inhabit and and flit around, and that speak to the expansiveness of our human experiences, you know, and we reduce everything to the idea of, here I am a mixed race black man, but a black man all the same because a drop of black blood makes a person black because you can't be white because white is free and black is enslaved. And I'm talking to a white man and you have privilege and I can't understand certain things about you and you can't understand certain things about me. Or we have to present ourselves that way to be fully respectful of the way the discourse is supposed to operate. Now you're supposed to defer to me on certain matters. And that's the kind of gallantry that you perform for me because we're supposed to understand you as having started out with certain advantages that are withheld from me. And I think that this is just not how human life works. And I think that it causes quite a lot of the problems that we're dealing with politically, intellectually, culturally. There's a real historical wound that I don't think we can downplay, but sometimes a correction can become an overcorrection and a solution to a problem can actually become in many ways a problem in its own right that rivals the thing it was trying to remedy.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I will say that I share your discomfort with racial essentialism for lots of reasons. I mean, I guess the most obvious of which is that the most committed racial essentialist are also the most committed racist. Very much so. You know, who loves racial essentialism? Richard Spencer, you know. Exactly. The whole notion of his or anyone's white supremacy sort of falls apart without the bogus claim that white people are biologically distinct from and therefore superior to other races.
0: Very much so. I think that, and they don't start from the same motivation, but there is a point at which a kind of anti-racism starts to reproduce the exact same categories of thought that race is the thing that's real and the thing that cannot be transcended starts to reproduce that in a way that would make quite a lot of sense to the actual racists. They just don't necessarily buy into the same hierarchical reasoning, but they start from a lot of the same presuppositions, and it actually gets you to a similar place. Richard Spencer believes a lot of the same things that you can hear the most prominent anti-racists like Robin DiAngelo say. He thinks that whiteness is a thing that's very real, and that curtains people like you off from people like me, and that those boundaries are what matter most in our interaction. I don't think that gets us to where we want to be if we want to make a multi-ethnic society that allows individuals to flourish. So I come from a position that is somewhere in the center and tries to avoid the kind of race essentialism that encroaches from both the left and the right. And that's a place that angers quite a lot of people.
1: I think as a service to the audience, it may help to just kind of say briefly what we mean by race essentialism? I mean, for me, it just pretty simply just means the idea that every race has some kind of essence that makes it distinct and separate and often better or less than other racial groups. I don't know if that maps with your definition.
0: Even if you take out the better or less than versus what the racist would apply, a racist might say, well, I think it's actually really good that black people can dance really well. Black people dance well. This is insanely racist, and it's not even true because every single quality that you associate with a race individuals can disprove that to reduce the individual to the quality of the group is to diminish the individual yeah yeah all of that kind of thinking it's so deeply problematic but we all we all slip into this from time to time and sometimes people will try to get out of the biological, race essentialism, but they'll do something culturally or socially that essentially functions as though it's a biological reality. So black people behave this way, or black people like these things, or Jewish people do this. And it might as well be a biological effect because you socially construct it to the point that it's so limiting that it still diminishes the individual's capacity to surprise.
1: All right. Let's get into the meat of this. Sure. My instinct, like the place I'm coming from, is kind of lefty class politics and for me the political toxicity of race makes me want to avoid it as much as possible because i think it often makes achieving social justice more difficult because of the toxicity but i also understand that it's incredibly easy for me to say that i'm not just trying to say the right thing here you know i'm genuinely conflicted about what i don't understand yeah maybe what i can't understand about my own blind spots i just want to put that out there on the table
0: well i think that we need more kind of honest conversation the way you set this up between people who are racialized in society as as other and people who are racialized as white and kind of occupy that way we've thought about race for so long as like a neutral space, like whiteness just is, and everybody else is a degree of deviation from that white invisible norm. And I also don't think that, you know, racialized people, black people, other types of non-white people have all of the answers in this conversation. It's going to have to be a dialogue. You can have blind spots because you are black. One of the things that... Albert Camus, who's one of my favorite writers, said that that really stuck with me is that he was catching so much hell for being pretty quiet on the Algerian question. When Algeria was fighting for independence and Sartre and everybody were accusing him of shirking his responsibility as an Algerian to weigh in, and he said, and it's important to note he's a French Algerian, but he considered himself an Algerian. He said, on the contrary, it's precisely because I'm from Algeria that I want to be quiet here because I think my identity can blind me to what might be the the correct analysis.
1: Yeah, well, you get lots of points for invoking Camus. We've done a couple episodes about him. Really? Yeah, he's one of my moral heroes, as nerdy as that sounds.
0: Mine too. I'm going to teach a course on him at Bard next semester.
1: Oh, right on. Anyway, uh, we're we're off the tracks. (laughs) All right, we'll get ourselves back on track here. I want to ask Thomas if it's a reasonable political goal to transcend race altogether. And I will, after a quick break. So how then would you describe your political project? Do you want us to transcend race altogether? Is that ultimately the goal?
0: Yeah, I think that we won't achieve the kind of multi-ethnic societies that most of us would like so long as we keep reproducing habits of thought that were passed down to us from the plantation, from the collision of Africa and Europe in the New World through a fundamental economic oppression that created a class of slaves. I don't think that these are rehabilitable categories. You can try to capitalize the B in black, make white people live with the lowercase w. (laughs) Those categories still imply a hierarchy that even trying to correct them only reinforces doesn't actually change. I think we have to have fundamentally kind of new thinking about ourselves and each other and having new ways of seeing ourselves and each other. We're going to have to find new ways to talk about these things and doubling down on identity is not working.
1: Well, I mean, the thing about identity, I mean, every identity, you're right, is a social construct. But that means it's not just a decision we make as individuals, right? It's something that's affirmed and reinforced and often imposed on us by other people.
0: It's a constant negotiation. Yes, that's a better word for it. Between your idea of yourself and the Identity reflected back at you from the institutions and people you interact with. So I can't just say I'm anything, and that's the end of the conversation. But we can collectively decide to change the way we think about certain things. People often say, well, even if it's not rooted in biology, I'm attached to my identity as, as X. And I think you still can be, but I think that you can say that a certain community of people created a certain music in a certain Geographical location, and that's the tradition that you come from, and you feel attached to that, but you don't have to actually go through the steps of racecraft that make that a kind of ethno biological reality.
1: You know, for you, like when does adherence to a social category like race become so ingrained that it effectively takes on the significance of a biological category?
0: It's a great question. When does it take on that significance? I think it takes on that significance when you simply reproduce the ways of thinking that are handed down to you. And it ceases to be that when you take the time to figure out who you actually are as an individual, the expansiveness of your humanity and what connects you to others. For me, that inkling of this happened when I was 19 years old and I read The Brothers Karamazov, and I realized my interstates were being described by a Russian racist who lived in the 1800s and was a proselytizing zealot. He was able to describe the inner states of my being fundamentally in a way that the people who looked exactly like me and lived next door to me could not. That planted the seed of questioning, might there be something that is actually my identity that doesn't fit in this way of thinking that I've been told is the way the world works? So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that thinking very seriously about who you are specifically is the first step out.
1: I find myself struggling in these ways when I'm having conversations about postmodernism or something like that, where it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of our categories, maybe all of our categories, depending on who you ask, are just totally foundationless if you plumb them to their depths, really. And I just don't know how much that fact really matters in a practical sense, since we are such socially embedded creatures. And, you know, At some point, I don't know when this becomes just kind of an academic exercise, and then once we step out of the seminar room, we're bombarded by the realities of the social world that we live in.
0: Well, that's the most common pushback I think I always get is that this all is fine and good until you step out in the real world and you're enmeshed in a social construct that has repercussions if you interact with a police officer or all these things. And that's true. And, you know, I don't think that we have to have 100% buy-in to the kind of argument i'm making that we need to transcend race but i think that norms can change and we can have more subtle ways of thinking of ourselves and each other than we do now and there can be a kind of partial victory and there can be communities in which there is a better way of thinking about these questions than there tends to be right now and so that's what really worries me about what's going on in in elite spaces in media cultural artistic elite corporate institutions the lack of good thinking and new thinking on race that's happening in those spaces, the opposite of what I would hope for. I would hope that we would have the best thinking on how to transcend race in the universities. And we actually have some of the most regressive thinking on racial categorization there, or in museums, or in magazines now.
1: We may agree on this. Part of the problem for me is that too much of this discussion is actually anchored to, or it's happening in elite spaces and part of what i try to do on the show and in my life just as a moral exercise is try really hard to imagine the world from the perspective of someone who's living a very different kind of life to the extent that that's possible if you're a black person occupying a very different social space than someone like you or me now today do you really have a choice to not identify as black if the world you swim in every day is constantly reinforcing that identity?
0: It's a good question, but you had mentioned earlier a very important word that we barely touched on, which is class. And I think that we could clear up a lot of confusion about essentialism and racial categorization if we would, as a culture, spend more time dwelling on the ramifications of of social class. And I wonder to what extent the sense of entrapment in racial categorization that that black person who's having a different experience in life than both of us are, I wonder to what extent that's governed by their class position. And I wonder to what extent you and I can understand each other and can take certain ideas and practices and norms for granted that a working class person in Mississippi not far from where you are now would not be able to participate in even if they're white.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think race and class and all these things intersect in really complicated ways. You know? I, I don't know if it may well be that a poor white kid and a poor black kid in Mississippi have more in common or have a, a more similar experience of the world than a poor black kid in Mississippi and a very rich black kid in Manhattan or San Francisco or something like that.
0: That's been my experience. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating. I, to a degree, more than most people that I socialize with now. I've lived in several different classes. And I think that the working class black kids that I grew up spending quite a lot of time with in my childhood had a lot more in common with the working class Italian kids that I grew up with in New Jersey than they do with the kinds of upper middle class and well-to-do Harvard educated black people that I encounter in adult life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess the point I was just getting at is that someone living a very different life under very different conditions is going to experience the world differently and therefore have a different set of choices and pressures, which isn't to say that even then there isn't some degree of freedom to choose or think differently, but it is to say that it's hard, man, like really hard.
0: I agree with you, but I think a lot of things that matter are hard and are challenging. I think it was really hard for a lot of people to change their thinking on who can marry or to what degree people can be openly gay in our society. And that's one of the most incredible things that I've ever seen is the speed, the rapidity with which an entire social norm could change. In less than 20 years, the entire culture shifted on something like that. And so I think it's possible, and I think that was hard. And I think that's actually something that had buy-in from elites, certainly. But you can also talk to a lot of people of different class levels who now fundamentally think differently about sexual preference.
1: Yeah. And even saying that class and race intersect in complicated ways isn't an argument for ignoring race. I mean, that that doesn't work either. It's just to say that the picture is really muddled because, well, reality is really freaking muddled, you know? It is. And this is partly why class transitions from one generation to another can be so disorienting to families yes maybe race isn't real in the particular way that you're talking about but a common experience in the world produces a shared consciousness and that's real
0: that's right i think that's a fantastic way of making the point race is classed and class is raced Mm. what you're talking about the kind of jarring class transition it can feel like a racial betrayal Because I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the thing was that united us was a racial identity or authenticity, but in fact what it was was a shared experience, which is why it's so important to have many more kind of stories, many more kind of narratives of what it means to be X category so that you see the expansiveness. We need more expressions of what it means. And I was stuck in a single story growing up. And what I was pushing back against and recoiling from was this notion that I had to perform a single story to have that negotiation between my sense of self and the others around me be validated.
1: You're not necessarily asking black people to give up their racial identity altogether. You're really asking white people to give up their whiteness. Oh, yeah. Is that something that has to happen first, or is this something that has to happen simultaneously, or or what? Because I think this is actually an important
0: point. Right. I'm glad you brought that point up, because none of this can work so long as white people fundamentally believe that they're white, and that that's a real category, and that makes them different from people who are considered non-white. You actually have to have white people cease buying into the racial binary to make any progress, especially when you just think about... How many people in America are considered white and how many people are not? I mean, white people are still most people in America. So you need them numerically, if nothing else. But also because they set the terms of the racial binary, whiteness is defined as not being that racialized other. But I do think that, you know, somebody has to make a move first. And so rather than wait for white people to stop at some point in the future, blacks and other non-whites might have something to contribute here by modeling how to transcend racialized thinking.
1: Yeah, I guess what I'm pushing on here is so these categories were imposed on black americans by white americans right so it's not like black self-awareness is the cause of anti-black racism absolutely right and even the the lefty materialist in me has to say that even even if on a cultural and psychological level hell the metaphysical level even if black people and white people were to abandon these constructs yesterday we'd still be confronting the material disparities in our world, say, in our criminal justice system or wherever, right? That's right. Making a move on one front doesn't eliminate or do anything about the problem on the other, and that I don't know what to do then, you know?
0: Well, even criminal justice and some of the material discrepancies benefit from being looked at through lenses other than strictly racial lenses. Yeah, yeah. Black Lives Matter was a really interesting movement in raising awareness about the degree to which people die in the custody of police far too frequently in this country and a disproportionate amount of those people will be black. The most disproportionate amount are actually Native American, but the most numerically are white. So I think that you can frame the issue as a racial issue and that gets you so far, but it might actually be better to frame the issue as one that's universally applicable. We have a problem of American citizens dying and being abused in the custody of law enforcement that's really out of whack with Western country norms. And this is something that affects us all as American citizens, and we should all be concerned about this. And you can kind of do away with the racecraft. This is something that has been reiterated by people like John McWhorter or Coleman Hughes or Glenn Lowry. And They're coming from a black kind of perspective that people don't often want to hear. But for every example of abuse you can find that fits X race category, you can find it for Y race category also. You can find white people who have died in every imaginable way in police custody. That's not to say that there's not a history of real racism and that black people don't have every reason to feel particularly menaced throughout American history by law enforcement and also failed by government protections, that's all real. But I don't necessarily know that the solution is to only like focus on the racial lens as opposed to the other lenses that we can apply.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would reject that false choice for sure, right? I don't think when you're dealing with social problems, I don't think it ever makes sense to focus on only one variable, right?
0: And you sound very reasonable saying that, but we often are being encouraged to focus on only one. I think that we are in a moment where there is an extraordinary pressure to reduce everything to one. Here is the single lens, and it's every aspect of our coverage now. We're being forced to think about things in terms of identity, and it falls apart with the the lightest scrutiny, the single lens.
1: The idea of rejecting racial identity might seem liberating, but for many Americans, racial identity doesn't seem like something you can just opt out of. I'll ask Thomas about this after one last quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seed of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's VOMBAS.com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. I can imagine plenty of Black Americans, well, I don't have to imagine this, that plenty of Black Americans have made these arguments that the racial cleavage in this country is so deep and so central to our history and our culture that Blackness isn't something they can escape, even if they want to. And therefore, their Blackness has to be defended and asserted. Does that make any sense to you?
0: It does make sense to me. You know, that resonated with me when I read Ta-Nehisi Coates Between the World and Me. A, a book that I profoundly disagree with on some levels, but when he said, you know, they made us a, a race, but we made ourselves a people. Mm. We made a culture, and uh, this culture is beautiful. And he described, I think, going through an airport, passing by another by guy, and the, the nod that they gave each other. And he just said, that's a beautiful aspect of being black. And I participate in some of that culture and find it. Meaningful. You know, it's a cliche, but that nod is a real thing, and it's nice. And I don't think that that has to be actually racialized to be meaningful and to be kept. But whether or not this identity was imposed on you or this racial categorization was imposed on you, you can continue to reproduce something. You can take the N-word and try to make it positive or whatever you want to do. That's your choice, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the best strategy for transcending the initial harm. One of the greatest contributions America made to world culture is the kind of music that's rooted in the blues, that goes through jazz, that goes through R&B, gospel, hip-hop. That's a contribution from the people who were enslaved in the society. They made the kind of world-defining culture that, in many people's minds, is synonymous with America. That's all beautiful. But that doesn't mean that being racialized as black through slavery wasn't a fundamental harm. Being made black in a racist society was a harm that was done. I would also say, and this is not my original argument, James Baldwin is probably the most eloquent person to make this point, being made white in a racialized and racist society is an enormous harm. I saw my white racist maternal grandfather harm himself through his belief in a racial hierarchy and his position in it as a white man. And it destroyed his ability to have a fully loving relationship with his daughter. So I would say white people would benefit just as much as black people from throwing off the racial harm of their white identity.
1: That may well be. I mean, I I guess I'm, I'm thinking like in a purely political frame. The thrust of the point I was just making is that, you know, black solidarity might be politically essential. For achieving racial justice right and sacrificing that or or throwing that off would very likely just favor the status quo right and if you're on the wrong end of the status quo that's a problem sometimes the insistence on a very individualist view of the world runs into a wall for me you know the individual becomes too abstracted from the concrete realities of social life and i just don't know how far that can take us you know
0: i think about it a lot and I think sometimes a kind of point that Albert Murray would make, which is like, at the end of the day, black people have only ever been at most 13% of the population. Yeah. So that kind of racialized solidarity is only going to get you so far. In my way of thinking, organizing politically around racial identity in terms of numbers is always going to be a losing proposition for black people. And it's not really a kind of organizing principle that you would want to see white people reinvesting in. You always need coalitions and coalitional thinking. And so I would rather organize around values and shared goals than around shared oppressions and histories of categorical thinking.
1: This is an area for me where, in a lot of ways, the political questions are harder than the ethical questions, right? Like, even if we can agree on normative questions, the question of like, okay, well, what's the best way Mm -hmm. to achieve these things, given all the political constraints? (laughs) I don't know the answer to that is. I don't know that anyone has an answer to that. But one thing I've said before on this show is that there is always a potential trap that we can get so invested in our identities and in our struggles for meaning and justice that it can become very difficult to move beyond them, no matter how much material conditions improve. And, And I know I'm really leaning into my ambivalence in this conversation. But I do share a concern, if that's the right word, that our current politics, in a lot of ways, is a perpetual ripping off of old wounds. Right. And that can breed a lot of inertia and stuckness and frustration. But then at the same time, leaning too much into that feels like a turning away from fresh, open wounds. And sometimes it's hard to know where the old wounds end and the fresh wounds begin, or even if there's a line (laughs) between them at all.
0: Right. I agree with everything that you're raising as a kind of form of ambivalence. I have quite a lot of ambivalence myself. I really don't think of myself as somebody who wants to reduce very complex questions to very simple platitudes and solutions. And I realize for a lot of people, the kind of solution that I'm comfortable with isn't comfortable for them now, but I'm trying to raise questions and have conversations that I think are important without trying to just, in an oversimplified way, say that we should just not see race or things like this. I'm not trying to have conversations on that level. So your ambivalence is something that that resonates with me. Yeah, yeah. This is a really important thing that we should all be asking ourselves. To what extent are we really dealing with the weight of history? To what extent are we really wounded? To what extent are some of the things that happen to us about the way we've been categorized? And to what extent are some of the things that happen to us just the ordinary and inescapable disappointment, pain, hardship, difficulty of being human and being alive, trying to make meaning out of a life that is often not perfect and wouldn't be perfect were you to have the racial wound addressed? And how much of the things that we think are so predetermined by our identity category, how much of that is just the real, what Albert Murray or Stanley Gretz called, just the blues of being alive, the inherent blues of being a creature that's trying to make meaning for a very short period of time and will die?
1: Look, I can say for sure that I would much rather live in a world where our race was the least interesting least notable thing about us I just don't know that we'll, we'll ever get there and, and maybe I end up somewhere between the pessimism of someone like a Tanahasi Coates and some of what I would call some optimism in your work but you know we we are such tribal creatures we derive so much meaning from the distinctions we make between ourselves and other people and it is so stupid and so dangerous but race seems to be An irresistible distinction for our species. And in any case, it is a distinction that is imposed on us. And more importantly, it's a distinction that has produced real concrete inequalities. And I'm not sure we can deal with those and let go of those distinctions at the same time. Or I'm not sure if we can let go of those distinctions until we've addressed those inequalities. And maybe that's where. Maybe that's where I land on this.
0: Yeah, I land somewhere similar. I mean, I think that one of the best ways or the most obvious ways to fix, if not all of it, quite a lot of the racial question would be to address the economic inequality question. I think that in settings where people meet as more or less equals, they can be astonishingly diverse places where people actually interact with each other. So that's just to say that the class question, I think, is one that matters a lot and gets short shrift. And this is Adolf Reed's point, and there's a kind of black socialist tradition of this, that the focus on race is actually an obfuscation from the thing that's really keeping us from achieving what would actually be the racial equality that we're looking for.
1: You mentioned France. You live in France, and and they don't keep track of race in the same ways that we do. But France is still a deeply racist society in lots of ways, even though they don't formally recognize race the way we do, which I guess just sort of raises that question, right? Like, does ignoring race do anything to undercut what we'd all agree are racist outcomes? And clearly it doesn't, or it's not sufficient.
0: It's not sufficient, but I would say that that's still a very class-based social reality that is also racialized. So France is also, you know, an aristocratic old country where the people who control the best opportunities and positions have always been white because the country wasn't even diverse until after the Second World War. So it's very difficult to separate that as a racial question from the fact that the people who are white today are the people who have always been in positions of social prestige. I think it looks very similar to America when you get into rooms where the people who are racialized as minorities are on equal social and economic footing with whites. Then You don't necessarily have the same kind of skin-based racism that you might imagine you would have if the society were truly a white supremacist society, if that makes sense. You have to have a kind of economic material concern to answering these questions, and what a lot of the discourse focuses on is the kind of permanent identity-based race wound that can never be made whole, no matter what opportunities are extended or, or what outcomes begin to amass There will always be this permanent wound that we must, I almost want to say, remain loyal to, because it's terrifying to imagine transcending the wound. It almost feels disloyal in certain ways. It's scary.
1: I guess I would say I am sympathetic to a lot of the arguments you make, and I'm certainly sympathetic to the broader political project of defanging the power of these divisive racial categories. And in the end, I don't know if your project is hopelessly naive or precisely the kind of naivete we need (laughs) to transcend the prison of our past. If I'm being truly honest, I think it's probably the former. But, you know, what the hell do I know? I do know this, at least. I'm thankful that we're at least having these conversations, and I appreciate you being here to have it with me. Thomas Chatterton-Williams, thanks for coming in.
0: It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Eric Janikas is our producer, Amy Drosdowska is our editor, Patrick Boyd engineered this episode, Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. I was really thankful to have that exchange with Thomas. There are places where we converge and there are places where we diverge. And there are places where, as I said in the conversation, I'm really just uncertain about what to think. I think it's always a good thing to think about it aloud with someone. And I will say this, I guess you could listen to Thomas or read Thomas and assume that he's making a very simplistic case for just moving beyond race. But I don't think that's quite right. I do think he acknowledges the complexities here in what seems to me a, a good faith way. And that's what we're all about. As always, let us know what you think about this one. Drop us a line at the gray area at box.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, Tweet it, Instagram it, whatever you do, just do all of it. We're off on Monday for Martin Luther King Day, but new episodes of The Gray Area will return next
2: Thursday.